Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail... There's a new name behind New Zealand rugby, a name many believe will give the game bigger global reach and shore up the grassroots back here. It's transformational for the whole game, not just the professional players. The final hurdle allowing NZR to sign a $200 million deal with US private equity firm Silverlake has been cleared. The deal will see the US private equity firm investing $200 million in a new commercial entity that will control all revenue-generating assets of New Zealand rugby. The current model is broken and we needed something to help move us forward. I know there'll be people who say that, you know, rugby sold its soul, but I, I don't believe that's the case. You know, rugby had to buy its future. After nearly 18 months in seemingly endless negotiations with players and provincial unions, the deal is done. New Zealand rugby has become our first national sports body to sell a slice of itself to a hedge fund. So how will this all work? What are NZ Rugby giving up? What will they get in return? And with rugby's cultural impact on the wane, player numbers dwindling, and a self-identified broken model, what's the strategy for using this injection of cash and commercial expertise to grow the game. Joe Porter is RNZ's rugby reporter. Looking at it in a broad brush kind of way and explaining, you know, the big headlines of this to someone who doesn't follow rugby particularly closely, mm-hmm. am I right in saying basically NZ Rugby is selling a slice of itself, yes. its revenue-generating arm, to a US-based hedge fund? fund. That's pretty much what's happened? Yep, yep. Essentially, I think it's between 58 and 8.5% of New Zealand rugby has been sold to a private US equity firm, Silver Lake, uh, and that's done now. They can't buy that back if Silver Lake decide in the future they don't want it anymore. Who knows where it could end up? So New Zealand rugby has sold a slice of its soul, so to speak, to Silver Lake. And of course, between the two of them, they've created this commercial co-entity, which will look at creating future revenue-creating projects for New Zealand rugby. It could include things like All Blacks coaching clinics, in-house streaming services, various other investments in other areas, and, and you know trying to cash in on the All Blacks brand, essentially, on a grander scale than is already being done. If you like rugby, or if you, are, you, know, if you don't actively wish misfortune on the All Blacks <laughs> and New Zealand rugby, yeah. is it a good day? Look, I think there's there's two answers to that question, and one is more simplistic than the other. For some people, they don't like the idea of any part of New Zealand rugby being owned by a hedge fund. Mm. They'd see a lot of risks in that, a lot of potential pitfalls, and they just don't like the idea of... They think New Zealand rugby is New Zealand's, is, is the people's, is the public's. We own it as much as New Zealand rugby do. They see mm. it as you know, part of the cultural fabric of our society, and they don't like the idea of it being sold off. Silver Lake are not benefactors. You know, they're not going to pump a whole lot of money into New Zealand rugby without expecting a significant return. The other thing that I suppose worries me to a certain extent is we're seeing this huge backlash in English football at the moment about the proposed football Super League. Clubs have sold their soul. But in reality... New Zealand rugby needs the money desperately. It is an absolute no-brainer, this deal. If this deal doesn't proceed, it'll be the biggest own goal in the history of New Zealand sport. Provincial unions, many of them are in massive debt. Mm. 
Otago have had to be bailed out several times in the past, as have other unions by New Zealand Rugby. New Zealand Rugby made a profit this year for the first time in five years, but they lost $40 million, which is almost half their cash reserves during the pandemic. They desperately need the money to, to not only keep New Zealand's top players in the country, we're already seeing the depth eroded underneath the top level by the big contracts in Europe and Japan. Daily power now, providing some breaking for Piatau and Robson. That's nicely done. And there are two Wasp players to the left. One of them is Piatau. Oh, another one for the gallery. Um, and America now as well becoming a force. So we're getting those guys who are pro- former All Blacks, former Super Rugby players who would go back to NPC teams and really help out. They're just not here anymore. Mm. The depth has gone. So that'll help address that problem. Uh, and also they would hope that the money trickling down to the grassroots game will help address massive issues with declining player numbers at both club and high school level and encourage the growth of the women's game, which has been one of the small positives for New Zealand rugby in the last few years. So, look, uh, simplistically, some people don't like the idea of it being sold off, but in reality, New Zealand rugby needs the money, and if fans want the All Blacks to remain at the top of the world, and they want New Zealand to be you know, a force in rugby internationally, as well as being able to protect the future of the game at community level, they needed the money, and this was essentially the only option, eggs in one basket. Had this been shot down they would have had to go to plan B, which they didn't have. So uh-huh. back to the drawing board, how on earth are we going to raise anywhere near this two to $300 million in capital without Silver Lake's involvement? And they just simply didn't know. So whilst confident they were going to get it across the line, and it was almost unanimous, 89 votes to one, there was still a lot of nerves in that room. And like you say, some palpable relief that this project has finally got the green light and they finally get to go ahead now and decide what to do with this money and how they can sort of sew up their future. So let's let's get a little bit into the detail of it. So you mentioned earlier Commercial Code. This is a company that has been set up which is going to control the revenue-generating assets of NZ Rugby. Is that the case? Yep, and obviously alongside New Zealand Rugby. So Commercial yep. Co. still re- is retained, the control is retained by New Zealand Rugby. However, of course, yeah, they have a board and there'll be, say, there's eight members. There'll be two from or three from Silver Lake. Mm two or three that NZR have picked, one from the Players Association and then a couple of other representatives that have been chosen by the provincial unions and the Māori rugby boards. So more NZR seats around the table than Silver Lake. However, you wonder what the power dynamic will be there. Mm. Silver Lake have come in with the experts and some pretty high-profile people by the sounds of it and all the money, and they say, we want to do things this way. Well, perhaps they're not in the majority on that board, but how much sway do they have because they've brought the money in and they control what goes on in the future? So you wonder about the power dynamic, but it's been set up so that NZR can hopefully retain control of it and you know maintain some sort of independence from Silver Lake. And we, when, we, when we talk about revenue-generating assets here, that's the All Blacks and, and Super Rugby, essentially. Are there any other aspects of NZ Rugby that generate meaningful revenue? Well, I mean, yeah, you, the, it would be... The, the sort of the teams in black in general, so the oh. Black Ferns as well. The Black Ferns Sevens are a particularly well recognised yeah, brand no, uh, around the world, being Olympic gold medalists, among many other things. At Ruby Tui with a viral interview last year. You know, I love how GB come together, eh? Like, you know, they're all split up, but then for the Olympics, they're all friends. It's funny because in the scrum, they probably hate me saying this. Sorry, Abby. But when they go down, they go, England! Like, they're real, you know, proud to be English, but they can't do it, yeah? So Abby's got to go, GB, when she goes down. So, like, you know... That sort of stuff. So it's it's kind of all the teams in black. Um, a detail that hasn't sort of been picked up in here but has been in place for a while now is there's, there's going to be a, basically a second-string all-blacks team each year. 
that uh, a New Zealand A of sorts, but they won't call it that. I think they're going to be called the All Blacks 15, because, of course, they have to have the All Blacks in their name, right, to capitalise <laughs> on the brand. So they're going to be called the All Blacks 15, and they're going to, like, shadow the All Blacks, and they'll go and play, get random games in the United States. They'll go and play other games in Europe, essentially taking that All Blacks brand to the world stage. Non-test games, of course, mm-hmm. Um, but they hope, obviously, that will create a whole bunch of gate takings and revenue for New Zealand rugby and Silver Lake. And Silver Lake will use, you know, even they'll be doing things like using the haka and New Zealand's connections with Te Kanga Māori, the All Blacks, as well as their Polynesian connections and culture to, to promote things. So there's an element of risk there. And that was some of the concerns that people had in New Zealand rugby that um, the Te Kanga and the cultural stuff that is really uh, you know, unique to New Zealand rugby could be misappropriated by mm. Silver Lake. The Players Association says rugby's Māori and Pacifica culture is not for sale and it's worried a deal could ruin the sport's relationship with fans. I guess that remains to be seen. Um, so more games. The All Blacks will probably play more games too. That's one way, easy way to make money. But then the players won't be that stoked about it. However, they will be getting more money. Yeah. And, of course, the All Blacks 15 will offset that by having a B team as, as sorts. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, to be honest, they already play outside the test window as it is usually every year mm-hmm. on that end-of-year tour to create money. They'll probably do in-house docos, you know, like a Netflix drive to survive type thing. Amazon crew might follow them around or whatever mm-hmm. it is, whoever Silver Lake are aligned with. Uh, they'll do things like that. You imagine a lot more in-house content creation. They're, they're going to create their own streaming service. Like I said, there's all-black skills and coaching clinics where they'll attract high-profile people from around the world to come and to participate in these clinics or they'll take the clinics overseas, large appearance fees to go to them and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So there's a few different options that they're, they're sort of floating around at the moment to create this kind of new revenue, but I don't think anything's set in stone just yet. And I guess that's an interesting element of this, isn't it, is that like people might roll their eyes at the idea of like a Drive to Survive mm-hmm. style documentary, mm-hmm. but oh, we did a podcast about it. Drive to Survive yeah. has been the, yeah. the, the you know spurred on a massive yeah. surge of interest and growth, in financial growth for yeah. F1. Absolutely. That, again, was was preceded by investment from, a, I think it was CVC Capital that invested in... in Liberty, in, yeah. Liberty, that's, that's it, that invested in F1. It's been hugely successful Absolutely. for them, and I guess it, so. That's that's the ideal world. That's the the, yeah. the greener fields from NZR's point of view. And you talk about you know why why was Formula One not growing in those foreign markets, and why was it stagnant, even though it was such a global and multi billion dollar product? It was because there wasn't access to the drivers and the teams oh. that fans wanted or casual fans would engage with. It was felt processional. Two teams were at the top and they would win. They were the only personalities that were ever interviewed and it was hard to sort of engage yourself in the rest of, the, in the rest of it. But Drive to Survive came out. Of course, the first few years, I don't think the top teams were involved and they had all this drama between the lower teams and yeah. fighting for survival and all the personalities and just incredible access behind the scenes. You know, interviews directly after people have crashed with drivers, with race directors, with team members and that raw emotion that you see when the race is ongoing and the, the drama and the squabbles and the theatre of it all. First, I thought, like, maybe he was there to check if I'm okay. Obviously, that wasn't the case. He was pissed off. In response, gave him a hand signal. I said, are you trying to kill us? I don't think he heard me and just called me a see you and um, and stuck his finger up at me. And that brought in a whole new generation of viewers for Drive to Survive. You, t- you know, we've, there's people in this newsroom yeah. that, that are now getting up at one in the morning to watch <laughs> Grand Prix on a Monday that two years ago wouldn't have even known who Michael Schumacher was. Yeah. So that's the, the opportunities they're looking at. And to be honest, as a journalist for the, uh, who's been covering the All Blacks for a long time now, 
access is an issue. That's my. This is my big beef with with rugby. Mm. Really, is that it's boring, man. Mm. You know, it's just so it's so it, boring. It is. Everything like what happens on the field is great. It's better than it's ever been. But sports that really have success and growth are the sports that have a narrative behind them. Yep, you know, totally. The NBA is another NBA's good example exactly. of when you know they have. LeBron James, there'll be 30 reporters around them, access to the locker room oh. after they've lost in an NBA Game 6 finals, you know? like that You just wouldn't get that. He's not He's not even in my f***ing league, like nowhere near me. Um, and if, if I was their coach, I would I would never put him on me ever again. He's, he's like, no, put somebody else on me because I'm, I'm a Taz every time we play. He's trapped. With the All Blacks, you'll get Steve Hansen and Kieran Reid trotted out to a press conference and Hanson will be touchy if you even mention a lack of attitude or something like that. It's, it's just not the same. You said we needed to get hungry and desperate before it was too late. Did the team turn up with the right attitude tonight? Yeah, I think we did. You know, you, you've seen how hard we worked out there. Definitely the boys really wanted it. I, I'd just like to clear that up too because I think it's quite a disrespectful question to suggest that the All Blacks turned up not being hungry. If you want to spend some time outside, I'll, I'll give you a rugby education on that one. Pretty average question, I reckon. And, of course, LeBron James is, is one of the biggest superstars in the world, but yet as long as you get access to him directly after a game. And that sort of stuff, you know, really does make a big difference. And you've mentioned it here. It's, it is frustrating. I mean, earlier this year we saw a couple of the Super Rugby players start to speak in post-match interviews on Sky about refereeing decisions and consistency around refereeing decisions and red cards and yellow cards, because that's been a big talking point this year as the new laws have come in and there's been a real crackdown on any contact near the head. And, you know, they weren't necessarily having a crack at the referees there outright or that particular... They were just saying, look, we would like to see some consistency. We would like to understand why these decisions are being made because we think it's a bit of a lottery at the moment with what's going on with cards. Adi Savia was one and there was a few others and then boom, what do you know, next week they all have a meeting with NZR... And they've been given a directive note. You don't talk about the refereeing. You just talk about the game. Focus on the product and what's just happened. Don't talk about anything else. And it's nice to see these players being honest and showing a bit of emotion and a bit of frustration. And, and it, they, you know, they were they were honest and critical, but they weren't malicious and they certainly weren't um, incorrect in what they were saying necessarily. And it, it was just created talking points. Mm. It meant all of a sudden, more than just your avid rugby fan was was. Hey, did you see that Ali Savia post match? Wasn't that intriguing? You actually talked about the referees. It brings brings up a good point. And set it back to the trotted out cliches next week, and oh, okay, well, there goes that interest. The two to three hundred million dollars that NZ mm. Rugby is going to be getting for this, uh, depending on their uptake, right? It depends on. Yes. So the, the offer is there for for up to three hundred million dollars investment, but it's up to commercial co as to whether or not it dips into that. Correct. Yeah. Do we know how that money is going to be invested yet? Well. $60 million initially goes straight into this what's called this legacy fund that we've, we've talked about briefly, which is going to be money that's untouchable, essentially, um, to protect the future of, of the game in New Zealand. And so that will be put away, and they'll hope to grow that $60 million, like I mentioned, to $100 million eventually, and then just start flicking off the interest they gain from that to helping out people that need it throughout the country, like I've mentioned, clubs here and there or a provincial union that needs a top-up. Um, so that's where $60 million goes. $37 million is being used as a short-term investment just to try and halt the decline of player numbers and also you know, give NZR a bit of money to make a crack into it 
straight away as viewership declines and all that stuff happens and, and broadcast revenues are decreasing, it gives them a boost to start cracking into some of these problems without having to wait for that to change. So 37 million straight away, 14 million goes to the NPC provincial unions, which are your premiership and championship, your top two NPC divisions. Six million to the Heartland Unions, which is you know your, your West Coast, your Buller, your Horofunua Kapiti. Maori Rugby Board gets two million. Those that they can use that money as they see fit. It will be tagged funding, of course, so they have to prove what they've done with it. Two million. Two million. It's not much, but that'll be used for, I guess, probably to help some governance and structures and, and, and connections there. Um, the referees get a little bit. Community clubs get seven and a half million. Super Rugby teams actually get one point two five, and if, it's spread out a, a few other ways as well. So. Largely, it's going to the unions, essentially that $37 million, and they don't know what they'll do just yet to shore up their position and to try and stop or halt these declining player numbers and grow the community game. But they're still celebrating yesterday because at least now they get to look at how they might be able to do that with the money. Women's rugby? Nothing direct, which I thought was a bit of an oversight mm. from... Well, if you're talking about growth million. areas, right? Yeah, um, but I guess the impetus is on New Zealand rugby and the $37 million initial fund and, of course, the unions and the super rugby teams to, to use some of that money mm. to put forward towards not only their women's teams who currently exist but encouraging the growth of, of women's rugby because it is one of the small areas of growth in the game uh, where you know New Zealand rugby can celebrate. So you're right, it, uh, it seems a bit odd. There's no direct or specific money for the women's game, although I imagine that the onus now will be on some of these unions to prove that they are doing something to grow that area. It's, but, yeah, a little bit disappointing that I would have thought, but, hey, maybe that's just me. You talked about rugby's financial strife before. Really, we're talking about Southern Hemisphere rugby's financial strife. Um, yep. The question does kind of spring to mind, you know. Rugby is the biggest commercial sports show in town in New mm. Zealand. Still, mm. the All Blacks are the biggest commercial sports brand in, in New Zealand with Daylight Second. Yep. We're still tuning out quality players left, right and centre. Eden Park sold out for the first Irish test in July. Yeah. yeah. And it looks like the other two will sell out as well. So ha- why are they in such... Why is rugby in the Southern Hemisphere in such dire straits? It's just the, the power of those Northern Hemisphere unions are so great. The broadcast money that they bring in from the Six Nations is just astronomical mm. compared to the revenue that the rugby championship brings in down here you know the viewing times work better for them it's just it's 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 crazy the money involved in the six nations so they have eyeballs and eyeballs bring cash yeah and eyeballs bring cash and they can sell out twickenham with a hundred thousand people and you know all the money goes to them all the money goes to england right and even when the all blacks go there all the money goes to england Mm. and so they they can sell out the games they've got huge amounts of broadcast revenue coming in no matter how big a lure playing for the all blacks is the lure of setting up your family for life with that much more money mm. is just going to be too 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 hard to ignore. I mean, that's already happening. You look at the likes of Charles Pieto. Mm. So, yeah, if that money discrepancy between salaries in New Zealand and the money you can earn in Europe and Japan grows too, too different or too big, then New Zealand rugby will have real trouble maintaining their top players and the All Blacks will suffer because of it. But there are still a few known unknowns. The biggest fish hooks were really... Concerns about misappropriation of the cultural aspects that are tied up with the All Blacks New Zealand rugby. Concerns that once that genie was out of the bottle of selling a stake in New Zealand rugby, it couldn't be bought back. Would Silver Lake maintain the best interests of New Zealand rugby at heart if the revenue isn't as much as they hoped it might be Mm. in terms of the generation? Are they just going to go after five years? No, it's not working. We're out. Sell it to God knows who. Who knows, yeah. And then, again, does, does that put New Zealand rugby's identity at risk? 
Um, you know, there, there are sort of there are many, many little pitfalls like that. You know, if it doesn't produce the revenue anticipated, could New Zealand rugby end up with less money mm. than they had before this deal? But they've already, but they've sold a slice themselves. You know. What happens if Silver Lake pulls out of their, you know, the tenure after, uh, deal after the first tenure? Even if they make money, they could do that because it might not be enough or they might not like the way things are going. could damage the relationship between New Zealand rugby and the public just because they, Silver Lake might decide to do things that New Zealanders just don't agree with. Oh. I think before the, the three parties went to mediation, the Players Association said in a letter, we believe there is a risk that the special bond and the nature of what rugby means to New Zealanders, players and spectators alike is at risk in the proposed transaction. So, they, you know, there, there was a lot of misgivings about basically bringing in a US equity firm, a hedge fund, and were there, you know, would there be anything nefarious going on? Do they have everyone's best interests at heart? Are they just out to make a quick buck and bail? Mm. That sort of stuff. Mm. And essentially those, I guess, were all appeased by New Zealand Rugby over the line, giving the Players Association and Provincial Unions a bit more power around this table and board has essentially helped them, I guess, overlook those risks. And um, the, the PwC report that came out a few months ago that was sent out to the unions, you know, that, that raised some concerns too. New Zealand Rugby didn't need all the Silver Lake money right now, saying that once the NZR stake had been sold, it was an irreversible decision. Also that there were, you know, were risks around whether or not the achievability of the new business and the new initiatives remains uncertainty, mm. uncertain rather. So we're talking about these new opportunities we mentioned before, executive coaching in all blacks clinics, involvement in esports, yet to be created streaming platform, those sorts of things, saying well, will they work? Maybe. But the report did say the deal has more upside than risk and they think that largely it was a good thing for New Zealand rugby to go for. Mm. So, you know, there, there, there are lots of little tricky points and there could be some devils in the details here, uh, especially as we see what Silver Lake want to do as this all moves forward. Uh, but like we've mentioned before, there was no real other option for New Zealand rugby. Mm. And had this fallen over, they would have been scrambling to protect what would have been a very uncertain future. Joe, just finally on this, um, I mean, the benefit's clear of this deal or the potential benefits are clear the potential risks are clear as well and yet you know the fact remains as well that this is the to my knowledge anyway the first time that a new zealand national sports team is selling a chunk of itself to an outside investor um and there is sort of like an emotional component yes. to that i don't know how invested you are in your blacks but like how do you how do you feel about it sort of taking my journalist hat off and putting my fan hat on certainly initially i was like you know you balk at the idea of new zealand rugby something that as New Zealanders, a lot of us consider part of the, the social fabric of society. New Zealand, the All Blacks are as much representative of New Zealand as anything else from yeah. this country. You know, in fact, possibly the biggest, you know, worldwide recognisable New Zealand, the silver fern on the black jersey. Yeah. I would say most people recognise that compared to the flag, you know, for example. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's certainly, it certainly is... The All Blacks and rugby in New Zealand, you know, how, how much of the country's own self-esteem and pride has been based upon our rugby success and sporting achievements in the past? We are certainly a lot of that whole, the nation's, you know, perceived ideas of, of underdogs and, and sporting champions, the battlers from, from, you know, the bottom of the world that fight and punch above their weight and, you know, all that sort of stuff. We're the, the best. The All Blacks yeah. are the epitome of that because yeah. we, they're the best in the world. They have been forever. And despite the fact that there's England and Australia and all these other sports superpowers that play, we won't, we'll ignore the fact that the, the US and whatnot yeah. aren't involved. But 
that gave us a, it gives us you a sense of pride, doesn't it? That New Zealand, little old small New Zealand, little old Aotearoa has the best rugby team in the world and always has done. Selling off a part of New Zealand rugby sold to a US equity firm, but then pragmatically or phlegmatically, there's there is no other option. New Zealand rugby needs the money, and if New Zealanders value the All Blacks being the best team in the world and having the best players, and still and you know really think that is important to them, they would probably have to admit that the money will help in that area. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. Our associate producer is Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Joe Porter. Matewa. Matewa.